Father God, it's a privilege to come together tonight to um, begin to get an historical perspective on what it is you have done with your people and how they have both fallen into obedience but mostly fallen into disobedience. We're grateful, Father, for the life of Esther, the example that she is, and how you worked in her life. Thank you for Gordon and for his preparation and for his presentation tonight. Ask Father that we be blessed by his words, but most importantly, by his explanation of your word. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks, Al. Well, when we left the story last time, we had the Jews in a precarious spot because although their great enemy Haman had been dealt with, the edict that he'd been able to get the king to send out was still in effect. So all over the kingdom, including the nation in the area of Judah, every Jew was in jeopardy of being annihilated, which would have meant if Haman could be successful, there would have been all the Jews would have been killed everywhere. Because there, as far as we know, there were very few, if any, beyond the Medo-Persian Empire. There may have been some, but at this point in time, not too many. You remember that Haman had took advantage of his position as number two in the country to go to the king and talk about these enemies of the state. And they didn't name them by name, just said they were threats and they needed to be wiped out or else they might rebel someday. And they didn't abide by his laws. They had their own. They didn't worship their gods. They had their own god. And, of course, Assyrus was very sensitive to this because he had just had a plot against his life and that had been uncovered. And so this new homeland security guy, uh, the head of homeland security, Haman, was, uh, he was listening to him. And then Haman sealed the deal by saying, and, sir, I'll just fund this whole thing for my own money. 10,000 talents of silver I'll pay into the king's treasury for this campaign. I imagine he probably added, and if there's anything left over, well, we'll just keep that as a contingency for future threats. And Assyrus thinking, man, this guy's doing a great job. He want to put his money where his mouth is. Let's, sure, go ahead. Here's my ring. You may seal the document, handle any way you want to, but let's take care of this threat. We don't want to have any more threats. Well, of course, there's a new queen on the throne. Her name is Esther, or Jewish Hadassah. She's a been raised by her cousin Mordecai, although nobody at this time, besides those two and maybe some close friends, knows that. Nothing, nobody in the palace seems to know what their relationship is. Mordecai is known to be a Jew. And, of course, he revealed that when he explained why he didn't bow to Haman. And Haman has, of course, had being an Agagite, he's got a genetic hatred of Jews anyway. So he certainly hates Mordecai, and when he won't bow, that just sticks in his craw. So the new queen is told by her cousin that she needs to go see the king and plead for their lives. And she explains that that's not a very, the downside of that is really bad. You can lose your life if he doesn't want to see you. But she says she'll do it with some encouragement from Mordecai when he says there's no plan B. You've been brought to this position just for this time. So she does go, and we talked about how she looked so beautiful when she walked in there and the sun was shining behind her. Of course, God's prepared to screw us, and he's, he really is a good mood. And he looks up and sees her, and she just looks so beautiful, and this warm, loving feeling comes over him. And he, before she says anything, he says, 
I mean, I'll give you anything you want, even up to half my kingdom. It's yours. And then he does put the royal scepter out to her, which was very important because if he didn't do that, they'd have grabbed her and taken her off to be killed. She touches the scepter. Her blood pressure drops down to something close to 200. And her pulse is now only 150. And she, expend, she doesn't just say what she wants. She knows him really well. And if you remember, she knows that you don't just drop a bad problem on him too quickly. Plus, the, the perpetrator she wants to talk about is right there. He's right there in the courtroom. This would not be a very good time to point out what the problem is and then point the finger at him. The reaction, she wouldn't know what the reaction is going to be. So she doesn't tell him. She just says, I'd like you to come to lunch. You and Haman come to lunch. And, of course, the king is very curious. Why would she come in here and risk her life? Just ask me for lunch. There's got to be something more to it. But this is a, a welcome diversion. So they leave and they, they go to lunch. And at the lunch, it's a wonderful lunch. But he says, now, what do you want, honey? Anything up to half the kingdom is yours. And she won't tell him. He says, well, why don't you come to a, this is a, just sort of a appetizer. Why don't you come tomorrow to a big banquet? I'll really do it this thing up right. And I'll tell you what you want to know then. And he's a little annoyed, I'm sure. He probably, the look on his face probably says, you better tell me, I'm getting tired of this. I'm a busy man, I haven't got time for all this coyness that you're doing. What is it you want? Anyway, they have to leave, and Haman misreads the situation completely. He thinks, boy, I got to go to the banquet. I was the only one in the whole kingdom with the king and the queen's presence. She invited me and nobody else. She must really think I'm doing a terrific job. Maybe she's going to ask the king to give me some more power and authority. So he leaves, and once again, he passes Mordecai, who won't bow. So when he gets home, he has he's going to celebrate his status. He, man, he's really come up in the world. And so he has all his buddies over, and they have to come because he's number two, and if they don't come, they'd be offended. So they have to come. They bring their wives and they're having a big banquet, and he's going on and on and on and on ad nauseum into the night about how far he's come, how was, how much he's done since he got here, and how he came from nothing, and now he's wealthy, and he's got all this power. And, he's just, and the people are starting to doze off, and wives are nudging them, saying, don't doze off. You don't want to do that. That's not healthy. But he, then finally he says, but you know, there's just one thing. With all this, I still got Mordecai. That turkey won't bow. I can't enjoy any of this if I don't deal with him. So his wife says, well, look, you're a big shot. Uh, why don't you just go to the king tomorrow and tell him you want to kill him. Tell him he's another threat. And build some gallows tonight. Have those built. And, hey, he'll trust you. You're his number two man. He's going to, anything you tell him, he's going to believe it. You're in a high, if you're this high regard with him, then whatever he, you ask him, he'll do it, I'm sure. Just go ahead and ask him. There's no reason he'd turn you down. Well, unfortunately, that evening, the king doesn't sleep well. God just happens to have him have an insomnia that night. He had stayed up watching a late movie, and it was really exciting, and he just couldn't go to sleep. So maybe Letterman was on. It was funny. And whatever. He just can't sleep. And so along the way into the middle of the night, or maybe toward dawn, he, he could have called for maybe Esther to come or one of the other women to hear him, but he's not in the mood for that, and he... He wants to have his exploits read to him. He loves to hear what he's done in the kingdom. 
So he has this servant come and start reading from the historical documents. And that servant, of course, could have picked anything. He's been in power now for about three or four years. And so they could have many different exploits could have been talked about. But he just happens to pick the story about the, the traitors that Mordecai had turned in. Two guys that plotted against the king's life. Mordecai overheard the conversation, told the queen, she told the king, and they found out the guys and killed him. I kill them, execute them. And the king says, well, that, I do remember that. Uh, what do we do for old Mordecai? What, what, what kind of reward do we give him? The servant says, well, sir, I don't see anything. There's no record of anything done for him. Well, how did that happen? I don't know, sir. It was just bureaucratic oversight. Man, we got to do something about that. Well, now it's dawn, and he goes in early into the throne room to begin conducting business. And first guy in there, of course, who got up early is Haman, because he wants to come in, be first on the agenda to ask about Mordecai's execution. So the king says, who's out there in the outer court? Haman's out there. Well, ask him to come in. He's always had good ideas about something like this. So he comes in, Haman and said, before he can say anything, the king says, hey, listen, Haman, what do you think a king ought to do for a man he really does want to reward? Doesn't mention anybody by name. Haman, of course, is very full of himself, so he assumes, oh, he's got to be talking about me. Man, who else would he be but me? So he lays out this showy spectacle about how he's going to be riding the king's horse in the robes and royal stuff and rings and all this junk and some great noble is leading the horse through the city, and they're crying out, "Us is the way the Lord, the King rewards a man He wants to reward or honor." And Ezra says, "Hey, that's a good idea. Let's do exactly that, and don't leave anything out. And I want you to do that for Mordecai." Haman is just about—he turns green. He is so mad he doesn't know what to do, but he can't say a word. He sure can't ask to execute Mordecai. That's ridiculous. He's caught. He's in a trap. He can't get back at this guy that he hates so much. So he has to do it, and he does. He goes ahead, and everything is done just the way he said. He leads him all through the street, and I'm sure every word just kind of sticks out. He can hardly see him. He, he doesn't even want to look up. He just kind of looks down as he's screaming all this. But he gets it done. Takes back Mordecai and the horse, and he goes home. And, of course, he's really unhappy. As I said last week, he kicks the dog. He's really feeling bad. And he's moaning and groaning about it. And uh, there are some astrologers there. There's are seers there, probably. And they say, you know, uh, this guy that you hate so much, this Mordecai, is he Jewish? Yeah, he is. You better leave him alone. You've you got a problem here. You better leave him alone. So they somehow knew that Mordecai was going to be favored of some god somewhere, and Haman better leave him alone. But his wife agrees that that's a good plan. You better leave him alone. But he doesn't get a chance to do anything before people come to take him to the next banquet. So he's got to go, and he doesn't want to, but he has to go. And at that banquet, Esther doesn't mince any more words. She tells him, she said, this. A terrible plot has been started against my people. They're innocent. They haven't done you any wrong at all. They're loyal subjects. Mordecai is a good example of that. And you're going to, this evil decree has gone out under your signature to wipe them out. And 
the king says, wait a minute, that's going to make me look like a jerk. I'm supposed to be the benevolent, loving king that loves all the people, and I'm all for the poor, and there's no, there's no racial bias here. There's no it's equal opportunity kingdom. This makes me look terrible. I'm, innocent people are being going to be killed and their property taken. Who did this? Who put that, that, that decree out? She said, that guy right there, Haman. He's your enemy, not my people. This is the guy right here. Oh, man, King is so mad. He can't hardly see straight. He's turned beet red. He's fuming. He storms out to go in the garden. He's got to collect himself a little. He just he doesn't even want to know he's going to say. Haman is also green in color this time, but it's because he's nauseous. He's about to lose control of every bodily function. His goose is cooked if he doesn't do something. So he goes over and falls on the couch where Esther is to bleed for his life. And I'm sure he's saying something like, I didn't know who, who, who you were. I didn't know you were Jewish. And I didn't mean that we were, you know, some dumb reason. But anyway, she's not listening. And that's a no-no. You never got that close bodily to the queen. And so back then comes the king, and here he is laying on the couch next to Esther. And he assumes that he's mad at her because she turned him in and he's assaulting her in some way. So then he just looks over at his servants and they know exactly what to do. They come over and cover Mordecai's head with a, a bag and he's seen his light of day. And they say, oh, by the way, sir, uh, maybe you ought to know this. He's got some gallows prepared for Mordecai. They're, they're ready out there now. They're 50 cubits high. And he says, he's going to kill who? Mordecai. That's why he came in here this morning. He's going to ask you for permission. That's what he came in here? Okay. We won't wait for the lions tomorrow morning. I'm sending him right now to those gallows, impale him on them, and get his sons and take them too, because they'll just grow up to be like him. So they do exactly that. However, that still leaves the Jews where we started tonight. They're in jeopardy. That decree is out there, and by the law of the Medes and Persians, it cannot be revoked. So unless something is done, they're going to be dog meat because apparently they don't have the right to defend themselves. They, don't, they can't bear arms. They can't defend themselves. Maybe it's an early version of gun control or something there, but these aliens in the country do not have the right to bear arms. So they're just going to be helpless. These people can kill them. Well, something's got to happen. So let's turn over now to chapter 8, and we'll see what happens. On that day, King Assyrus gave the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, to Queen Esther. And I think he probably gave it to Mordecai, too. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had to close what he was to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had taken away from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king, fell at his feet, and implored him to avert the evil scheme of Haman the Agagite and his plot, which he had devised against the Jews. And the king extended the golden scepter to Esther, so she arose and stood before him, which would indicate he hadn't asked for it. She had gone again uninvited. And then she says this phrase, which she always says, If it pleases the king, and if I found favor before him, the matter seems proper to his king, and I am pleasing in his sight, let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha. Agagite, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who were in all the king's provinces. 
How can I endure to see the calamity which shall befall my people? How can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred? The servant said to Queen Esther to Mordecai, Behold, I have given the house of Haman to Esther and him, and they have hanged on the gallows because he had stretched out his hands against the Jews. He doesn't add right here, but my hands are tied. I can't do anything about this. However, what's he going to do? He is going to allow them, Mordecai and Esther, to come up with a plan that will counteract this. You write to the Jews as you see fit in my name and seal it with the king's signet ring. For a decree which is written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's signet ring may not be revoked. So the king's scribes were called at that time in the third month, that is the month Sivan, on the 23rd day, and it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded to the Jews, satraps, governors, princes, provinces which extended from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces. To every province according to its script, every people according to their language, as well to the Jews according to their script and their language. And Mordecai wrote in the name of King Assyrus and sealed it with the king's signet ring and sent letters by couriers, horses, riding on steeds, sired by the royal steed. In them the king granted the Jews were in each and every city the right to assemble, defend their lives, destroy and kill, to annihilate the entire army of any people or province which might attack them including children and women, and to plunder their spoil. Whoa. Can you imagine now when that, those edicts get out there, the confusion that must have caused in there? Here are two edicts. Decree 1 says you can take any Jew, you can kill him and take his property. Decree 2 says, but they can kill you if you try to do that. So are the Jews enemies of the state? Are they favored by the state? What's going on? I mean, nobody knows exactly what to do, but of course greed is over going to come all of their trepidation. So what do they try to do? Well, they most of, many, many, some, some at least 75,000 attack them all over the provinces. They're attacked by people who want to kill them and take their property, but they've been able to maybe plan, arm themselves, maybe get organized into units of militia, and they're able to defend themselves. So on the one day in the province of King Assyrius, the 15th, 13th day of the 12th month, that is the month of Dar, a copy of the edict is issued to each and every province, published to all the peoples, so that Jews should be ready for the day to avenge themselves on their adversaries. Apparently this day is very close at hand because the guys have to ride very fast. They get on the best horses available, and ride as fast as they can to India and Ethiopia. And when you think about how far that is from Susa, that's a long way. Some of them had probably a thousand miles to go, others several hundred miles, so they had to get with it. Or the day was going to come and the Jews wouldn't know that they could defend themselves. Couriers hastened and impelled by the king's command went out riding on the royal steed. The decree was given out in Susa. And Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a large crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews were light with gladness and joy and honor. Each province and each and every city, wherever the king's commandment and decree arrived, there was gladness and joy for the Jews, a feast, a holiday. And then an interesting statement. And many of the peoples of the land became Jews. 
for the dread of the Jews had fallen on them. So since they can't figure out whether the Jews are enemies of the state or they're favored by the state, many of them must think, well, the best thing to do might be to just join up here. Just go ahead and accept this, this God of the Hebrews and figure out what I have to do. And apparently a lot of them have. And they've done what they had to do, maybe circumcision. And so they could go to this synagogue and they could uh, be accepted as a Jew. Now, the New Testament talks, of, well, all through Scripture. In fact, it confirms that racial, being a racial Jew doesn't save you. Now, if that's, when you really think about it, wasn't that the big problem that the Jewish people had when Jesus came? They thought they had, that they, in effect, had a, an exclusive relationship with God. He, they were, he was theirs. They were not to share him with the Goyim, the, the Gentiles. They were like trash, and these they were special people. And just being a born a Jew sort of gave you a, an inroad to heaven as long as you did a few things. You had to follow a, ch- a few checklists here. You had to, of course, observe the right feasts and sacrifices and festivals. And if you did that, if you were a racial Jew, man, you were home free. And, of course, Jesus had to straighten them out on that. Faith had to be involved. If faith was not involved, if you didn't understand why you were doing those sacrifices and what they meant, and you didn't understand why those observances meant something to God and therefore better mean something to you, if you were just going through a checklist religion, you weren't going to make it. I don't care what your racial deal was. And we know, of course, that all through Scripture, certain ones did come to faith. Rahab, remember her from Jericho? Ruth? came from Moab. Uriah was always called Uriah the what? The Hittite. Well, here's a guy who was a Hittite, which was definitely an enemy of the Jews, and he had come over, accepted Jehovah, had worked himself up into the top 30 or so of David's commanders. He was one of these top guys, which was sad because when you think about David having him murdered, he couldn't have found a more loyal guy than Uriah. If he'd had all the soldiers like Uriah, he would have been in good shape. So he kills that one guy because of his own sin. But that just illustrates that there were Gentiles from time to time. They were never completely forgotten by the Lord. So these people, many of them have come to worship. And it says the dread of the Jews fell on them. Why do you suppose the dread of the Jews fell on them? Well, if Mordecai can send out that kind of an edict, what might his next edict say? You can kill anybody you want to and take their property. Well, he's already said that. You can take their spoil if they try to attack you. But maybe he broadened that to say, okay, now, if they, even though the ones that didn't attack you, you can attack them. So they're probably scared. Maybe why some of them converted. We don't know that. But for one reason or another, they're afraid of, and they're afraid of Mordecai. The dread of him has fallen on them. They're just worried about him. He's got a lot of power. Who else can you remember in that same general region was able to do almost the same exact thing quite a few years earlier? Daniel. Daniel managed to, even though he was an alien, he managed to work himself up to a very high position in the government. And his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they were too, but he was the top dog. 
In fact, when I think when their story took place, he may have been gone somewhere out to one of the provinces because he doesn't, he doesn't appear anywhere in their story. So he's probably gone. But Daniel was a guy that managed to, with God's favor, get to be a high position in the government, as has Mordecai now. How did that suit sit with the people in Daniel's day? How did they did they like him? The, the other officials, they hated him. Here was this Jew that had come in, and now they couldn't do they couldn't be corrupt anymore in their office where they were always skimming the money off the top of everything they did, and they couldn't do that anymore because Daniel wouldn't put up with it. They hated him and wanted him killed. I'm sure Mordecai's probably got the same problem. He's looked on about the same way. Okay, now back in chapter 9, we go on to what happens that day. Now in the twelfth month of Adar, the thirteenth day, which the king's command and edict were about to be executed, on that day the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them. It was turned to the contrary. So the Jews themselves gained the mastery over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities throughout the provinces to lay hands of the king, to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand before them, for the dread of them had fallen on all the people. Talks about when all the princes, satraps, governors, were doing the king's business, assisted the Jews because they were afraid of Mordecai. The dread of Mordecai had fallen on them. They better assist them. So indeed, Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. Then the Jews struck their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying, and they did what was that they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the capital, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. And he goes on to mention. And finally, down in verse 16 of chapter 9, it says, Now the rest of the Jews were in the king's provinces assembled to defend their lives, rid themselves of their enemies, and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but did not lay hands on their plunder. They didn't take the spoil if they could have. Now that tells you... A couple of things. Number one, there's an awful lot of Jews that were still in the land. They had never gone back, as I think God probably wanted them to. When Ezra first came, or when Cyrus first told them that they could go home, a number of years before this, they should have gone. The only way they could stay in the covenant agreement with him was to be in the promised land worshiping in the temple, and they chose not to do that. And still, God takes care of them. He protects them right here. 75,000 at least were killed, so who knows how many Jews were involved. It doesn't mention that anywhere that I can read how many Jews died. You think maybe none did? I don't know. It says they were, they prevailed. So then 19, they made it a holiday for rejoicing and feasting and sending portions of food to one another. Mordecai recorded these events. He sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces near and far, obliging him to celebrate this 14th day of the month Adar and 15th day of the same month annually. Now they call it now what? Purim. Purim. And that's named after Pur, which was the lots cast by Haman to find out the proper day to send out, to make his edict applicable or enforceable. So he had gone to all the trouble to Look at the, the lots or the, the spirits, I guess you'd have it, to get the right day, astrologers, to get the right day with Jupiter lined up with Mars where he could. And then that's when he chose that day so that they could defend or they would be annihilated. So even today, 
the Jews celebrate that feast. And what do they do, honey? They have a little boppers. How do, like a little plastic hammer. And they go around bopping each other on the head with it. And it's just a little pain. It doesn't hurt. You know, just pop, 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 pop. And what's it? I forget what it symbolizes. They're killing Haman. That's what they're doing with it. I thought maybe they were killing their enemies. but, you know, but So then that feast, that's what they do. You wonder how many of them really know where the story started and how God protected them, even though they really weren't where they were supposed to be. And they had, in effect, disobeyed him by not going home when they could have. And still he protects them against Satan's attacks. Now, as we talked about last time, there was a number of interesting coincidences that took place. Let's just review those. What if Queen Vashti had agreed to go when the king asked her to go, come to the banquet? Then she wouldn't have been disposed or deposed, and Esther wouldn't have been made queen. So God put it in her heart to start a women's lib movement a few centuries too quick, and she gets banished, and Esther takes over. Esther is very pretty and shapely. What if she'd been 300 pounds and fat? She wouldn't have made the cut. She'd never been in that group that were selected to be the, the virgins to go before the king. She had to be, a, it says she was beautiful. God made her that way because that was going to be part of what she had to be in order to fulfill the destiny that he had set for her. But she could have been ugly if, you just had to, if he'd wanted her to be. She isn't. Remember, Mordecai is in exactly the right place to overhear the plot. If he hadn't been there that day to overhear those plotters talking about the king, they would, he wouldn't have known about it. That whole story would have turned out differently. His name would not have been associated with the assassination attempt. He wouldn't have been deserving of reward at all. <clears throat> How about the night the king can't sleep? Why can't he sleep just that one night, the very night between the two banquets? He can't sleep. Well, that was the reason I think he had Esther delay what she told him. Instead of blurting out the problem the first day, he must have put it on her heart, hold off, hold off a little bit. i got something to do here. And she must have sensed that there was a reason to delay, and she does. And it's in that delay that all the rest of this takes place, where the king can't sleep. Haman comes up with his scheme about trying to execute Mordecai. If the king had had a good night's sleep, no chronicles are read. If Mordecai had been rewarded before, when he first turned them in, then there's no mention of him not being rewarded. There's no reason to reward him. Maybe his name doesn't even come up, so the next day when Haman comes in and asks for execution, Asuras doesn't put two and two together, doesn't understand that it was Mordecai that turned the guy, and he's not all fresh on his mind like he is now. And we talk about other places in Scripture where God, over and over, he outmaneuvers Satan. Something just happens to occur at exactly the right time and place. What about Jonah? It goes down to Tarshish. What just happens to be scheduled to leave right away? A ship. Going where? Exactly where he wants to go. Now, if that ship hadn't been there and wasn't able to go, wasn't scheduled to go, maybe Jonah thinks it over and doesn't, and doesn't do it. And doesn't, maybe he repents and the whole story changes. But no, he goes on. What if the sailors had managed to get him to shore? They tried. They tried to get the ship to shore and get him over, get him put on the shore. 
They didn't want to, they didn't want to drown him. But they couldn't do that. So then they have to throw him over. But if they've been able to put him on shore, no whale, no story. Maybe Jonah doesn't go to Nineveh. Thousands of Ninevites don't repent. The whole thing changes. God, that one little thing back there, a ship just happened to be ready to go. God had arranged that. Isaac's servant is far away from home looking for a wife. And she has to say certain things. He's been told that she'll have to say just the right words. And if this woman says that, and who just happens to come down? Rebecca. And she says exactly the right words, feeds the camels like she's supposed to. God arranged that. Could have been any other girl. Could have beat her down there that morning. But Rebecca got up early and she was there. Joseph's in a pit ready to be killed by his brothers. But a caravan just happens to come by going to Egypt where God wants him to go anyway. And takes him down there as a slave. He's not killed. If he had been killed there by his brothers, of course, a terrible tragedy, murder. But the story would, wouldn't have played out like it did at all. Moses' mother risks her life to save her baby boy, even though Pharaoh has ordered all the Jewish mothers to kill him. And the midwives, too. What if she'd been a coward? Her name was Jochebed. Does anybody know Moses' father's name? He's not very important because he's only mentioned a couple of times in Scripture. His name was Amram. Apparently, Amram didn't do anything to save his baby boy. He wasn't He's going to stand up to Pharaoh. There's no mention of him in there. But the mother, Jochebed, is courageous. She's going to take a chance. She's going to risk her life and put that baby in the Nile River. Now, most babies put in the Nile River in a little basket. What's going to happen to them? Crocodile's going to get them or Aladon, one of those two, is going to get them. Are they going to be so far out in the current going down that nobody will see them from the bank? No, Moses, nothing gets him. And he comes over to the bank. And just who happens to be there that day? The princess. And she takes him, raises him as her own, and king. Moses kills an Egyptian. What if he happened to stay in the palace that day and hadn't gone out there where the, those workers were? He wouldn't have killed that Egyptian. He wouldn't have had to flee. He might have been raised as a prince of Egypt and perhaps even become pharaoh at some point. He still could have in that position, if he knew who he was, he could have freed the slaves. But would he have done it? And would God have gotten the kind of glory he got over the whole centuries because he used his mighty power in those ten plagues and then killing all those Egyptian soldiers at the Red Sea? So if Moses doesn't kill that Egyptian and has to flee, the whole story is going to change. Moses changed Joshua's name. He was born Hosea, which means deliverer. Moses changed that to Joshua, which means God saves. Now, at the time he changed that guy's name, I imagine Joshua talking, what are you doing? And none, the dad said, Moses, what are you doing? That's my boy's name. What makes you think he's going to change his name? Let me tell you. That guy's been selected by the Lord to do some magnificent things. And there's going to be miracles in there like no one's ever seen before. The walls of Jericho are going to fall. If a man named Deliverer is taking him in there, who are they going to give credit to? Him. He'll be the hero. No, no. His name is God saves. He's the one that's going to give us all the victories, not Joshua. And Joshua, I'm sure, understood and went right along with it. But when he changed the name, it wasn't a very important event that day. What if Gideon's men, the 300, once they were 
encamped looking down over the Midianite camp. There's only 130,000 of them down there. And you can just imagine how far the tent stretched and the number of camels and the smokes and the cooking fires. These guys had said, oh boy, I don't know about this. this. This may not be the smartest move I've ever made to be in this little 300-man unit and gotten cold feet. Now, they didn't have the Lord appear to them at any threshing floor. They hadn't seen any fleece wet or dry. They hadn't been down in the Midianite camp overhearing a conversation that Gideon got to hear with his servant. They didn't get any of that. All they were doing was taking Gideon his word, and he said, now he gives them a battle plan, and it seems like, oh boy, you just surround, you all three of you 100 guys go and surround this thing? Well, first of all, with that many down there, they're going to be spaced out pretty far if they're going to surround the whole camp. And you have these pitchers and you know, a trumpet. It seems like kind of a dumb battle plan. I don't know if I'd been there. I'm afraid I might have taken off in the night. Nobody had known about it. They didn't. None of those guys deserted. Not a one. They may have thought it was a suicide mission, but they stayed right there. First Samuel 23, there's an interesting little incident. David is fleeing from Saul. And he asked God, he said, now if I take refuge in that village over there, will they turn me in to Saul or not? And his answer comes back, yeah, they'll turn you in. So he doesn't take refuge in that village. He bypasses goes on. What if he had? What if he'd taken refuge there? What if he said, oh, I must have had a little too much wine. I just thought I heard something tonight. So he just goes ahead and goes over there. Well, he'd have been turned in. Would God have preserved him? Yeah. He was anointed. He's going to be king. But the story would have changed. And it's interesting because there are two timelines that were going to proceed from what he decided to do. If he chose to take refuge, there'd be one timeline and one whole story that would have to change. Or if he doesn't take refuge, it'll be the way we write, we see it in Bible Scripture, exactly the way it did happen. So God knows even when there are two possibilities of how things could go, he knows how to work out if you go A or B. Fortunately, David didn't do that. He listened to the counsel. What if Uriah had gone home to Bathsheba the night that David called him back so he could go home and David could cover up the sin he's, where he's gotten Bathsheba pregnant? How could he have? What if Uriah had gone home? Well, then, of course, David would have covered it up. And the pregnancy would have been attributed to Uriah. David might have thought he got away with it. Might have become a little smug. and Certainly wouldn't have had the guilt that he had when Nathan came to him. But instead, he kills Uriah because he doesn't go home. Again, just a, one decision on Uriah's part not to go home that night. Changed how the story was going to play out. Many years later, in 1 Kings, Hezekiah is being besieged by Sennacherib of Syria. And right in the middle, of just as the siege is about to take place, he gets really sick, terminally sick. And Isaiah says, make your, make your will, Hezekiah. You're not going to be here much longer. You're gone. And oh, he weeps and cries and carries on. God says, okay, I saw your tears. I'm going to let you have 15 more years. What happened in that 15 years? Who was born that wouldn't have been born? Manasseh. The worst king they ever had was born in the 50 years. If Hezekiah had died on schedule, he wouldn't have been born. 
Not only that, the Babylonian spies that came later to congratulate him on how he won this magnificent victory against Sennacherib and recovered from some fatal illness, God must really be for you, and you must be a great battle commander to have defeated Sennacherib. So he gets a big head, and he shows them everything in the kingdom, all his treasures, all his armaments, all his defenses, and they go home because they're spies. They're not going to come back for about 100 years, but then when they come back, they use that information to sack Jerusalem. If Hezekiah had died when he's supposed to, that wouldn't have happened. The whole story would play out differently. Would, would Nebuchadnezzar still have come? Probably because they were still, the Jews, he was punishment for them. He was God's servant to come. But the whole thing of how it happened would have turned out differently. So everyday events may seem so unimportant at the time, but each one has critical and sometimes far-reaching effects. And we're supposed to learn from these, and God's in control of everything that happens. He plans the future, and his will and his plans are always going to prevail. No one's going to thwart them. No one's going to divert them. Every one of these stories that we've mentioned shows that how God protected his chosen people. Some tested the faith of a servant or revealed the character of another one. Sometimes he could see them as a vessel he could use. Sometimes it showed there was a vessel he couldn't use because they, wouldn't, they weren't going to be faithful. What about today and us? Who are the chosen people today? Us. 1 Peter 2. Well, we'll turn over and read that. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. It's a really good... We don't want to take it too far, but we want to understand what it says. If anybody gets that, well, let's, I guess I better read it for the... You, believers, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God, who had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Temporarily, God set the Jewish people aside, and all of the wonder, they, they had that exact same thing said about them back in the Old Testament. And he set them aside temporarily. When did that happen? When they rejected Christ. They had rejected him over and over all through the Old Testament, but the worst in-your-face rejection was when Christ came, God in the flesh, and they rejected him. So he set them aside temporarily. But I don't make the mistake of thinking that the church is going to get all the blessings that were promised to the Jewish people, and God has no further use for them. That's not true. God has the definite use for them. He's not through with them. Part of what's going to happen in the last days of history, the tribulation time, called the time of Jacob's trouble, is a period of testing, putting them through the fire of testing. Several places it says that two-thirds of them will be killed, and a third of them will not be killed. He's going to bring a third of them through the fire, and they're going to be special to him, and every one of them is going to come to faith. Romans 11 says every living Jew will come to faith. Maybe the way Paul did. I don't know how it will happen, but it'll all, it will happen. They're, they're going to recognize their Messiah and they're going to react the way that Zachariah says they will. 
Turn over to Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 9. It will come about in that day I will set about to destroy all the nations who come about against Jerusalem. And I will pour out on the house of David, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. So they will look on me, whom they have pierced. Who's the me? The Father. And they mourn for him. Who's the him? The Son. As one mourns for his only Son. And they will weep bitterly over him. Bitter weeping as for our firstborn. Can you imagine how a Jew will react when the truth dawns on him? of who Jesus really is and how they have acted toward him and treated him all these centuries. Can you imagine the weeping and the crying? And It's a bittersweet thing. Sweet because you, the veil's been taken away from you and now you see the truth. But it's so bitter because of all the loved ones that you know that are in the grave and they're gone and they're lost and they're never going to be saved. They're only going to come out in the second resurrection, not the first one. Psalm 139 is both comforting and disturbing because what does it say? Every day of your life was written before you were ever born. So next time you think that maybe Romans 8.28 isn't true and you can't figure out why something's happening in your life or why someone else got credit that you deserved or some event that seems so... Sometimes I think of this, and this may be over, over or taken a little too far. Have you ever gotten mad because you missed a red light? And in your hurry, you really need to be somewhere, and oh, got it. the guy ahead of you is really slow, and you miss the light. And you're just, oh. And then about four streets down, you see a T-bone car accident. And one of those cars would have been you if you'd have made that light. And God simply protected you from it. And you didn't, you weren't there. You, know, you don't know that, that you'd be there. But in the way he has it, he just simply protected you. But every event of your life has been written down before you were born. I think that proves the final point that I would make about Esther. There are no coincidences in her life. There are no coincidences in your life. None. Zero. A believer has no coincidences ever. Not, there's no such thing as a coincidence. It's kind of like the only other word that's never heard in heaven. You know, there's one word never heard up there. Oops. Never heard oops. And the other word you never hear up there is coincidence. No such thing. Not in God's planning. He's in absolute control. Father, we thank you for this story and all the characters that you showed us in there because sometimes we see ourselves in some of these things. I don't know what I'd have done if I'd been one of Gideon's men. I don't know if I'd had the courage to do what they did. I'm glad you didn't put me in a position that David was put in with Uriah. I'm glad that you didn't put me in a position that Moses was put in when you asked him to go down there and, and act as your servant to rescue the people. I don't know what I'd have done if you'd asked me to go to Berlin right after World War II and preach the gospel to the Nazis, as Jonah had to do to the Assyrians. I might have reacted like he did. I just, but I do know that you've got a purpose for me. You've got a purpose for everybody in this room, and we're going to live out our life until we fulfill that that purpose. And, and in many cases, like Gary Boltman, Lord, he's still alive because you got something for him to do. I know it's important, or he wouldn't be here. But we ask you to heal him if that's your will.
if it's not his your will that you would spare him and Vicky the, the problems that they're having and the stress and take him home to be with you. I know he'd like to be there. But we thank you for the love you've shown us and how you've listened to our prayers and how prayer is such a mystery. You know exactly what you're going to do. And yet you want us to participate in the process and something in the way we do that affects what you do and yet you give us credit for it and you desire it and you know exactly what you're going to do before we ever prayed. Well, prayer is a mystery, Lord, that I don't understand. But I thank you for letting me participate in it and for listening and hearing my prayer. And those of all these and all the loved ones that they have that they care about and how they pray for them. So in your name we pray all these things. Lord Jesus.